All right, everybody, we'll get, we're going to get started. After you. So today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Mike Winters. Uh, Dr. Winters, many of you know, is the director of our emergency department here. He uh, trained in internal medicine and emergency medicine and, uh, here in Maryland and was my senior resident years ago when I started my first month of intern year. He is my resident. So, so you're um, responsible for Mike Winters? He's completely <laughs> responsible for all of the my bad habits. <laughs> way, back, way back when the MICU was 10 beds and where I don't even know what storage facility it is now next to the chief's office. Right next to the OK Corral, I think. It's a wild west. Um, so Dr. Winters uh, has uh, won multiple national awards, has spoken internationally on a number of critical care related topics um, and how they pertain to the emergency department specifically and has won numerous um, education awards through American College of Emergency Physicians and basically every emergency medicine society. And we're lucky to have him here, so thanks, Mike. Thanks, Mike. Thanks all for coming during lunch hour. It's really a privilege to be able to speak to you this morning. I am working currently in the ED, so one of my attendings is relieving me or stepping in for the, the hour that I can spend with you, and I'm, I'm very thankful for this opportunity. What I want to do while you're enjoying lunch is just talk about a few aspects of running the perfect code. Now, how many of you as fellows and of attendings have, let's just say in the last month, run or had a cardiac arrest resuscitation? Very, very common. And let's just say, show of hands, over the last five or six years, how many have you, how many of you have participated in a code, or at least were told of a code maybe, that could have gone better? Very, very common. So I want to leave you with just a handful of pearls and pitfalls in terms of running a cardiac arrest resuscitation and also bringing you up to date with any new numbers or new recommendations that were just published in October with the 2015 AHA update. Now to get things started, as Mike said that I, I did train here and was very fortunate to, to be in residency with Mike, I can certainly offline trade a number of stories of him as an intern in the medical ICU. But something that Mike, Mike may not know is that I actually am from Baltimore. I was born at St. Agnes Hospital, so as you know, just a few miles down the road. And for the first few years of my life, we lived in the city. I was raised in the city in Woodlawn and then subsequently Catonsville before my parents moved us out to the suburbs where I currently live. Early on, my dad actually is a Maryland State Troop uh, police officer, and for the first 15 years of his career actually was the medic on board the medevac helicopter. So as trauma was getting going, it didn't even have that building first, but he was bringing us patients here in the trauma center at the very inception of shock trauma. In addition to that, he worked two or three other jobs, and my mom was an administrative clerk, and so really during my first few early years, first decade of life, my parents were really working hard to make ends meet. And as a result, I really got to know and became very close with my mom's parents, my grandparents. They did a whole lot of things for us, picked us up from school, made sure we got to evening activities. I grew very close to my grandfather there in the, in the middle of the picture, going to Baltimore Orioles games at Memorial Stadium, and just doing a whole lot of things. A really, really great role model to have. And, just as an aside, this is for Mike and those of you that have known me for much, much longer. There was a point in my life that I did have hair. So you can see there's proof there. 
But I can tell you, things changed for me June 25th, 1987. So as a 14-year-old sitting in the apartment of my grandparents' home, watching TV, I heard this strange noise, and I turned over to see my grandfather clutch his chest and then fall forward onto the floor unresponsive in cardiac arrest. And now many of you probably would assume that that was the beginning of my medical career, in essence, thinking about caring for patients in cardiac arrest or resuscitating them, or just more broadly thinking about critically ill patients that come into the ED. But I can certainly say that regardless of whether that was the turning point in my career, I, that's a day that I will probably carry with me forever. The sights, the sounds, even the smells of that day as my grandmother stood over him trying to revive him, scream his name, the arrival of EMS as they raced into that ground floor apartment, initiating CPR on him, trying to establish an IV, trying once and then twice and then three times to establish an airway that was unsuccessful, and then putting him in the back of the AMBO, and ironically racing off to St. Agnes Hospital, the very hospital where I entered the world just 14 years earlier. Now we've come a long way in those years since June of 1987, and we have new updates to think about in terms of caring for the cardiac arrest patient or that resuscitation, whether it be as an outpatient or whether it be on the inpatient floor or even in the ICU. There's some pearls that, as I said, I want to give you in terms of running the perfect code. Because still to this day, over half million of our family, our friends, our colleagues, and our patients sustain cardiac arrest. And unfortunately, despite advances, less than 15% still walk out of the hospital with meaningful neurologic survival. So what is it that we can take away from this discussion, some pearls, so that when you have that very next resuscitation that you're running, how can we increase and get above, say, that 15% threshold and have many of our patients walk out with meaningful neurologic survival? Now, I know that you know that these are important components, high-quality CPR, early defibrillation, and then more so to this group, your experts in taking care of patients post-ROSC or return of spontaneous circulation. But what I want to add to that is a few things just on team leadership, what the literature shows us, this concept of hemodynamic directed resuscitation. Really, what is our goal when we are running a resuscitation? I want to touch on the new numbers with respect to CPR and what it means for high-quality CPR. Is there any role for medications? just briefly touch on one novel therapy and then talk about just pearls or the new numbers with respect to post-arrest care. Now I can tell you going back to that Thursday afternoon or Thursday morning per se in June, driving with my grandmother frantically to St. Agnes, arriving to the emergency department and being ushered into the family waiting room off to the side, it was still within view of their resuscitation room. And I vividly remember just the amount and the cast of staff that were running in and out and back in to that room as they were attempting to resuscitate him from cardiac arrest. And one of the things that I was struck with as a 14-year-old thinking about just how chaotic 
that environment was that morning. I want to leave you, or start off with the first pearl, that it's, it's very clear that our ability to lead a resuscitation can impact whether it's successful or not. In fact, deficits in leadership have been shown to cost the lives of our patients who may have otherwise survived the etiology of their cardiac arrest. What do I mean by that? Well, the literature shows us that poor team management of a resuscitation not only leads to lower or poor quality CPR, but lower rates of return of spontaneous circulation and ultimately lower or decreased patient survival. Just two studies, this came out about a little less than two years ago in the Journal of Critical Care. This was a systematic review of over 60 papers that have been published on this concept of team coordination in running a resuscitation. And the three big themes, leadership, planning, and communication. What do I mean by that? Teams that were run well or resuscitations run well established ROSC faster. Team leaders that clearly defined roles for staff not only achieved quicker intervention time, but had reduced hands-off time and high-quality CPR. And absolutely, perhaps one of the most important things, is our ability to communicate clearly with our staff that are doing those interventions affects outcomes in cardiac arrest resuscitation. This was the next study, a little over a year ago in resuscitation. Now, England has a national database about cardiac arrest. So what these investigators did is take a look at that English or that national database to say, well, what, what are the errors that are occurring in cardiac arrest resuscitation? No surprise, knowledge deficit, equipment failures reasonable, and then once again, miscommunication. But if you take a look at application of knowledge, by far and away the most critical point was indecisiveness of you and I leading that resuscitation, the team leader's indecisiveness. So it's now incorporated into the 2015 guidelines. As team leaders, as we get the call that code blue, where the patient codes and the nurse grabs you and you run into whatever ICU room it may be, it is our job to ensure that we are delivering high quality compressions, minimizing interruptions, and we'll talk briefly about that, and avoiding excessive ventilation. So, pearl or take home point number one, when you walk in, establish that you are the team leader. Take charge of that resuscitation. Clearly assign roles to your staff, whether that's gonna be someone who's doing compressions, recording, using ultrasound, administering medications. Use short utterances and clear phrases with your team. And above all else, when you're directing it, Please be decisive in your communications and don't let a deficit in our leadership cost the life of that patient who may have survived. What about hemodynamic resuscitation or hemodynamic directed resuscitation? This has gotten a lot of publicity literature within the last several years. What is it that we're trying to do in terms of resuscitation? And it really ultimately gets back to CPP, not cerebral perfusion pressure, but coronary perfusion pressure. For patients to survive, we need to establish my, reestablish myocardial blood flow. Makes sense, and the primary determinant of myocardial blood flow is coronary perfusion pressure. And as you all know, diastolic pressure minus right atrial pressure is that perfusion pressure. Now, in terms of the literature, a lot of it initially was based on animal data to say the failure to, to obtain an adequate coronary perfusion pressure 
led to adverse outcomes. Now there's been some human literature, JAMA now going back a few years certainly, but those patients that achieved a coronary perfusion pressure above 20-25 had a much higher rate of return of spontaneous circulation than those who failed to obtain a CPP less than or above 20. Now we don't know the absolute or the actual CPP that determines the greatest percentage of ROSC but we certainly know now in some consensus statements, so this was endorsed not only by ASEP, but by SCCM as improving ways in terms of cardiac arrest resuscitation, we as the team leader should be thinking about optimizing coronary perfusion pressure and at the very least targeting it with compressions plus minus pressors to get above 20. So what are the three ways to think or try and obtain CPP? Well, those of you that are working in the ICU and in the rare circumstance that a patient codes and they've got an A-line in and they've got an upper line, you could theoretically calculate directly the CPP with diastolic minus right atrial pressure. Now, that's pretty rare. And I would say in a code resuscitation, probably never going to occur. So what's another way to think about or maybe get a surrogate for CPP? Next line in this consensus document would be target a diastolic pressure. So if you have an A-line or if you have someone who can establish an A-line during resuscitation, the guidelines or recommendations would say target at least a diastolic pressure above 25. Now there are some that feel you probably need to get to 35 or 40 in terms of a diastolic pressure with compressions plus minus pressors, but it gives you a way to try and attain CPP. And if you've got none of that, so central line, no capability for an A-line, and some of you will go practice in settings if you're especially in emergency medicine and splitting time, you may go to facilities where you can't place an A-line, end-tidal CO2. So at the very least, using end-tidal CO2 during your resuscitation and targeting interventions to achieve an end-tidal CO2 above 20. And it's now, once again, being incorporated just two months ago into the latest AHA updates of using these physiologic parameters, whether it's end tidal CO2 or diastolic pressure, to monitor CPR quality and detect return of spontaneous circulation. So take home pearl number two. In addition to taking charge of that resuscitation, think the ultimate goal or what you're trying to do is reestablish myocardial blood flow and the strongest determinant is a coronary perfusion pressure. If you can, use an A-line to target aortic diastolic pressure, or at the very least, be using continuous or end-tidal CO2 in your resuscitations. So as I sat there anxiously in that room with my grandmother, not, I think that she was simply having her, heads in her head in her hands praying at that time, I kept trying to peer out into that room to see what was going on in St. Agnes Resuscitation Bay. And at some point the curtain kind of parted as people continued to run in and out of the room and I remember vividly seeing staff up on top performing chest compressions. So in addition to the events of the morning that occurred in that apartment, these are, this is one of these images that I'll always take with me. And so when we talk about high-quality CPR, what does that mean currently December 10th, 2015? Well, we are characteristically and routinely, as providers, 
unfortunately delivering compressions that are too slow, too shallow, and we're not allowing for adequate recoil of that compressor. Key things to take home, the numbers to remember in terms of the latest update are the rate, the depth, allowing for complete recoil, avoiding leaning, and then targeting a chest compression fraction ratio. And we'll go over what that means. Current recommendations now put an upper limit on compressions. So you should, we should try to or have our providers 100 to 120. The 120 comes from a study in critical care medicine from 2014 of over 10,000 patients in the ROC Prime trial. So this was primarily an EMS trial that showed rates above 120 affect the quality of CPR and lead to decreased return of spontaneous circulation rates. So the rate is now 100 to 120. A depth of five to six centimeters or two to two and a half inches in, in essence. This comes from resuscitation, Ian Steele, also the same analysis of the Rock Prime trial. This was over 9,000 patients that showed either shallow or deeper depths resulted in lower return of spontaneous circulation. Something that we're criticized often, and I can see this routinely in our resuscitations, we're not allowing for full chest recoil. So it is very important when you're watching and as the team leader observing who's doing compressions, ensuring that they have full recoil or allow full recoil and don't let them lean over top the patient. So often we lean over top the patient in an attempt to get deeper compressions, but understand by leaning over, it increases that right atrial pressure which is the comp critical component of CPP, therefore decreasing coronary perfusion pressure, ultimately decreasing cerebral and myocardial blood flow. And something in terms of a chest compression fraction, this is critical as team leaders of the resuscitation. The latest AHA guidelines say we should be targeting chest compre compression fraction above 60%. So the total time from arrest onset till the time we either call it or achieve ROSC over 60% of the time, we want to have chest compressions done. Now, that other consensus document from SCCM and ASEP would suggest 80%, but the latest guidelines are saying at least 60% of the time we need to be delivering those high-quality chest compressions. And how do we achieve that? Well, you know this. We don't really know the optimal time for airway intervention, but certainly peri-shock pauses should be kept to less than 10 seconds. So charging the defibrillator for shockable rhythms while compressions are being performed, hands off for shock, and I know that there is some literature talking about hands-on defibrillation. I don't think we're there quite yet, but as soon as that shock is delivered, resume high-quality CPR, keeping that peri-shock pause to under 10 seconds. It might even be reasonable at this point to stop checking for pulses. And it's something that we're looking at. We do have, as many of you know, we have cameras in our resuscitation bays in the ED, in rooms 19, 20, and 21. So we've got a current QI project going on about using or doing pulse checks and how long it's taking. And unfortunately, that prelim data is coming in saying that we're taking way too long. And I think that's probably consistent with many resuscitations, whether it's in-house or across the nation we're still taking too long and interrupting these high quality compressions. Lots of recommendations to say just forget pulse check because using end tidal CO2 and that spike in end tidal CO2 will allow you in many of these patients to see and determine if there's been return to spontaneous circulation. 
And many have just said, get rid of pulse checks because we know they're unreliable, whether we try to do a carotid, a radial, or most commonly try to ascertain a femoral pulse. So using end tidal CO2 absolutely is critical, I think, in terms of running a cardiac arrest resuscitation. Now with ultrasound, we use it in almost every, or probably every resuscitation that at least comes through the emergency department. And I know that you're using it in the ICU. But I would caution you, getting back to team leaders, to not use it so, so frequently. And we found this in a little bit of our own QI stuff that, yes, we use in the ultrasound initially to say, do we have a reversible cause? Is there a, an effusion or tamponade that we should drain or a suggestion of PE? as the etiology of this non-shockable rhythm. But understand that each time you go back to the chest, pause compressions with ultrasound, it's going to detract and deteriorate the overall goal of achieving chest compression fraction greater than 60%. So I definitely don't want to say don't use ultrasound, but please be mindful of how frequently you're using it and keep in the back of your mind as team leaders not letting it detract from chest compression fraction. So key pearls number three, in terms of high quality CPR, it is our job to ensure that these are being delivered at a rate of 100 to 120, depth of 2 to 2.4 inches or 5 to 6 centimeters, making sure that whoever is doing compressions allows for full recoil, they're not leaning on the chest, and you and I are being mindful to target that chest compression fraction greater than 60%. What about medications? So you are a very advanced audience, perhaps the most advanced that we have the opportunity to speak to. You know that in terms of the rationale for vasopressors are we're trying to increase that aortic diastolic pressure, thereby increasing CPP, ultimately increasing cardiac output and cerebral perfusion pressure. We also know, and you know, that the use of epinephrine in cardiac arrest resuscitations not only leads to decreased microcirculatory cerebral flow, but also an increase in myocardial O2 demand, an increase in post-defibrillation ventricular arrhythmias, and ultimately an increased incidence of post-ROSC myocardial dysfunction. These are the patients you receive in the ICU and where myocardial dysfunction sets in. There's also, you also are aware of multiple studies, now these have been observational, talking about the association of epinephrine use and decreased long-term survival in patients primarily with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest resuscitation. So where do the current guidelines, so a month and a half or two months ago, what does the AHA say? And they very much have weakened their statement regarding vasopressors. So now you see, instead of give epi, give epi, give epi, epi may be reasonable. They haven't removed it, but they very much have weakened that phrase in terms of their recommendations. In fact, in the vasopressor section alone, over a dozen times they use the term may be reasonable. So bear that in mind. Now, in terms of the non-shockable rhythm, there's a little bit of literature to say perhaps if you give a presser within the first 10 minutes of onset, maybe it does lead to increased ROSC rates, but ultimately not to long-term survival rates. Importantly, vasopressin is out, so it's no longer indicated in terms of cardiac arrest resuscitation. And for that matter, walk away remembering or knowing that there still remains no definitive evidence that an a vasopressor or an anti-dysrhythmic medication, amiodarone, whatever you want to use, 
is associated with improvements in long-term survival. It truly gets back to high-quality compressions and early defibrillation. And pressors may be reasonable. Yes, sir. Correct. So, yeah, so I, I think that, that initially when the VSC article came out, I think that got put into a lot of practice initially, and I think that that has fallen by the wayside. Not, not that it's not being used, but when you take a deeper dive into that particular in-hospital cardiac arrest patient population that they took a look at, it's questionable about the benefit. And I think, was it Manish that came? I think he, he, he talked about that as well during this conference, using that, and it, it, it may be reasonable, we just we don't have additional evidence to support that. Have I used it a handful of times? but not consistently in terms of these patients with cardiac arrest resuscitation. It's a great question. Any anecdotal success with it? Nope. <laughs> no. All right, so next pearl. Pearl number four, vasopressin's out, and epinephrine, once again, may be reasonable. And as you continue to give, her, give epi and epi and epi, realize that it's probably, if you get that patient back, you're in for a whole host of trouble in terms of increased incidence of dysrhythmias as well as myocardial dysfunction. And then for those of you in this room, I'm not, you are much more advanced in terms of this, these novel therapies. I simply want to highlight the fact that eCPR is now incorporated into the latest guidelines for select patients who come in with a potentially reversible cardiac etiology. So in terms of implementing ECMO or eCPR, we still don't have an RCT and there's no universal protocol. And as you all know in managing these patients, on ECMO or ECLS, very resource intensive. So where do we stand currently? What would at least the available literature say is the best candidate in terms of eCPR? Well, it's certainly for patients who are witnessed, who bystanders in a very short period initiate compressions. EMS is overall short transport time and they've got a shockable rhythm, so VFib or pulseless VT. Short time to ECMO initiation in the ED and ECMO as a component of a larger resuscitation strategy that would include targeted temperature management and early PCI. So this seems to be the ideal candidate where you're thinking about eCPR. So probably after what felt like an eternity, but maybe was in actuality 15, 16 minutes, emergency physician comes out and comes into the room and, and my other family, my, my, my parents were on the way in, so it was just the two of us sitting in that room, anxiously awaiting what was going to, what that emergency physician was going to say. And at that moment in time, he had said, we have a pulse back. Your grandfather's still with us. I don't know what's going to happen, but we've got him back and he is alive at the current time. So would you like to come in and, and see him? He's going to be intubated and the same spiel that perhaps I've refined and now say to my patients' families was said to me on that June 25th late morning. So he'd had ROSC, you go in and certainly, once again, I can remember the, the lines, the tubes. But in talking about the post-arrest goals, once you've gotten that patient back, I think running the resuscitation can be complex but more so what we do in the post-arrest period 
is going to determine whether that patient gets out of the hospital with meaningful neurologic survival, exactly where you all receive the patient perhaps from the emergency department. And when we talk about post-arrest goals, twofold, simply to optimize neurologic resuscitation and prevent secondary injury. Those are our main goals in this immediate post-resuscitation period. And what you do in the first few hours following ROSC probably stands to have the greatest impact as to whether this patient's gonna get out of the hospital with meaningful neurologic survival. And not only is it just targeted temperature management, but as you know, optimizing and talking about the right oxygenation, ventilation, talking about optimizing hemodynamics, implementing TTM, and then who needs to go for emergent PCI. So a few pearls with respect to that. Let me just touch on oxygenation and ventilation. We all put patients on 100% FiO2, right? So whether we intubate them or they come in intubated, or we get them back and then secure the airway once we've gotten ROSC, we all administer 100% FiO2 initially. But certainly, as you know, and recent art literature would support, that not only may hyperoxia be bad for the lungs, but it also affects multiple organ systems. CNS, immune system, vascular system, inducing vasoconstriction. This is one study that probably some of you have read, just came out relatively in the last several months in critical care medicine, one of the concise definitive or, or reviews, taking a look at all the cohort studies that have evaluated hyperoxia versus normoxia across a variety of patient settings. And of the 24 studies, half of which have been done in the cardiac arrest population, and the strongest association with in-hospital mortality is in the cardiac arrest, or more importantly, the post-arrest patient, to the tune of an increased incidence of in, well, increase in in-hospital mortality. Importantly, a few other pearls from this paper that it was hyperoxia as defined on the first ABG, so when they're coming out of the ED or in the first few hours of the ICU, that had the strongest association with poor outcome, and the higher the level, the worse the association was with patient outcome. This was a study by Josh Reynolds, one of our former EM graduates who went out and initially went to Pittsburgh and now has moved on, but they have a large, as many of you know, cardiac arrest database, resuscitation database at Pitt. They said, well, what, what's our experience here in terms of hyperoxia over the first 24 hours? Just shy of 200 patients, but one out of every three were exposed to PAO2s above 300 in the first 24 hours following return of spontaneous circulation. Take home message for every hour of exposure to these extremes of oxygen tension, survival to hospital discharge decreased. So in terms of the latest guidelines, when we talk about the section on post-cardiac arrest care, what do we want to be doing with oxygenation? Well, certainly starting off with 100% makes sense. But as you start to manage the patient, dialing down the FiO2 to simply maintain saturations above 94%, is reasonable. No need to indefinitely keep them on 100% FiO2 and have that ABG return as PO2s of 360, 375, or perhaps even higher. Now in terms of ventilation, equal to oxygenation, some just pearls in terms of ventilating these folks, you know this all too well, but ventilatory or pulmonary dysfunction is incredibly common in these post-arrest patients. When you're using lung protective ventilatory settings, you're all comfortable with the concept of permissive hypercapnia. But in the post-arrest patient, you need to pay attention to your ventilatory settings and target normocarbia. Because if we 
hyperventilate these folks, we induce vasoconstriction and we'll ultimately get back to our primary goal of optimizing neurologic resuscitation, we decrease cerebral perfusion. So in setting the ventilator, pay very close attention to your respiratory rate and adjust it to target normal carbia. And the updated numbers would suggest if you want to use ABGs to follow these patients, targeting a PaCO2 between 35 and 45, or if you're in monitoring these patients with end-tidal CO2, adjusting the rate to target an end-tidal CO2 between 30 to 40. So targeting normoxia and targeting normocarbia as goals for optimizing oxygenation and ventilation. What about TTM? So where, now that you all know the Nielsen study, where do the latest guidelines come down on TTM? So class one indication for adult patients with ROSC after cardiac arrest implementing TTM for all comers. Now for the shockable rhythms, class one, but level of evidence is better for the non-shockable rhythms, even though it's recommended, understand that it's still expert opinion. That the data in terms of non-shockable rhythms, the observational trials have not shown the benefit that is usually seen in patients who have shockable rhythm. And the guidelines now say maintain somewhere between 32 to 36. Now I'm not, you may be familiar with, I'm not aware of a study that's looked at that wide range. It's either been 32 to 34 or 33 versus 36. Now in terms of when the Nielsen study came out, the institution here got together in terms of what are we going to target, and as you know, it was kept at 32 to 34 for a variety of reasons, but Karen McQuillan has reconvened the group in the upcoming weeks to say, should we now revisit this and perhaps allow higher target temperatures? So here at our institution, a little bit more to come in the coming months as to what the temperature will be, but understand the guidelines are now saying prevent hyperthermia or fever and then target temperature between 32 to 36, keeping them there for 24 hours. As you know, some of the initial studies had 12 hours, but guidelines would say 24 hours of cooling. Does it matter? This is one study from circulation taking a look basically at our endovascular catheters versus surface cooling devices. I'll go through this fairly quickly, but the end goal in terms of catheter versus ice packs, non-invasive methods of cooling did not affect outcome. The patients who had the endovascular coolers got to core or goal temperature sooner, was more reliably kept at core temperature or that goal temperature, but there really was no difference in outcome between the two methods of inducing TTM. So next pearl in terms of post-arrest management, current guidelines once again 32 to 36. We'll see if ours changes probably within, I think January is the meeting time for that next TTM group to get together. But then finally, let me wrap up with emergent PCI because this tends to be a problematic area as who goes for cath in the immediate post-resuscitation period. Certainly those who have a STEMI pre or post-arrest, almost all of them have a lesion that's amenable to PCI when they're taken emergently. Over half, however, patients with non-diagnostic EKGs or non-STEMIs still have a lesion that's amenable to PCI when early intervention is done. Current guidelines, class one, emergent cath lab activation for a pre or post arrest STEMI. No question there, once again, high relatively high level of evidence 
we're activating the cath lab. But what do you do in the non-diagnostic EKG? Anybody had that scenario? It, I think it tends to be the most common that we have is the non-diagnostic, non-specific ECG. And we certainly know that PCI is an independent predictor of mortality and the absence of ST elevation on that initial post-recess ECG is not predictive of who actually has a lesion that we need to intervene upon. Now, almost a year ago, the AHA put out their NSTEMI guidelines. So just at the end of 2014, they came out with their NSTEMI guidelines and said for the NSTEMIs, patients who have so persistent ventricular arrhythmias or electrical instability or are hemodynamically unstable, they should get cath within two hours. Now this, they didn't specifically mention post-arrest, but you could certainly make a strong argument that patients who are post-arrest are hemodynamically unstable. What do they recommend currently with, in the last two months? So emergent angio or PCI is reasonable in these NSTEMI patients. But I think probably even more so, more important than our guide, the AHA guidelines would be this article. So in terms of managing these patients, this is an article certainly to have in your file, take a look. This is actually from the Journal of American College of Cardiology. This is our cardiology colleagues' own literature. They publish and put together an algorithm for who should really be going to cath post-arrest. No question here, and I know it's a little hard to coming through on the interface, but the STEMI activate the cath lab, goes right to the cath lab. But let me blow up the non-STEMI component. In essence, they're still recommending that these patients go for catheterization in the absence of these features. So I won't go over them all, but in terms of that non-diagnostic EKG, they've now put together reasonable literature to say, in the absence of these unfavorable risk factors, these patients with a non-diagnostic ECG should be going to cath. And we recently, in the last two weeks, from an emergency department standpoint, we met with our PCI, or our interventionalists here, and we have adopted this algorithm in terms of sending patients to cath post-arrest. And it's now being adopted across the medical system. So down the street at 250 West Pratt, the medical system, BWMC, other hospitals, St. Joe's, we're gonna be following this algorithm in terms of post-arrest cath. So it's very applicable and important for you all to know you'll be receiving these patients you know, in the variety of ICU settings that you practice this is being adopted across the system as an evidence-based guideline or algorithm for cathing patients post-arrest. So final pearl in terms of that non-diagnostic EKG, certainly if they're unstable from a hemodynamic or electrical standpoint, consider early cath in the absence of STEMI, ongoing ischemia, and the absence of those factors that you'll have in your slide set that's available for this particular talk. So in terms of running the perfect code, what are my pearls as you kind of wrap up lunch and we start to head back to our various practice settings and I head back to the ED to stamp out a whole host of issues that are coming in this afternoon. Once again, I, probably the most important thing for this group is really, really taking charge of that resuscitation. You are the team leaders of that resuscitation. So assume that role be decisive, clearly communicate, and once again, don't let leadership 
of that resuscitation be the reason that that patient doesn't make it. In terms of that leadership, thinking about coronary perfusion pressure, at the very least using end tidal CO2, targeting a value above 20 with high quality compressions, and maybe vasopressor therapy. In terms of those high quality compressions, ensuring and looking at who's doing them, rate of 100 to 120 at a depth of around five to six centimeters, making sure they're allowing for adequate recoil and avoiding leaning. And once again, the big, big picture, chest compression fraction at least 60%. Forget vasopressin, consider epi. It may be reasonable. In terms of when you, got, when you have that patient back, I know that you're using lung protective strategies, but FiO2 decrease as soon as you can to avoid prolonged exposure to hyperoxia and adjust your respiratory rate to once again target normocarbia, so an end tidal CO2 between 30 and 40. Implementing TTM for all comers, realizing that the non-shockable recommendation still is expert opinion only, targeting 32 to 36. And then once again, the pearls with respect to the non-diagnostic ECG. So as we stood there by his bedside, the alarm started going off again, and unfortunately he lost his pulse. We were quickly ushered back into the, the family room. Shortly thereafter, some of my other relatives began arriving. But unfortunately, that second arrest, he did not survive. So he died that day, June 25, 1987 a day that, once again, perhaps changed my, the direction of my life as I stand here before you, thinking about cardiac arrest resuscitation. And I certainly hope that over the last 45 minutes that I've been able to give you just maybe a few new pearls that you can take back with you and when that next code blue goes off across the hospital and you're running to that or you're running it in the ICU or you're doing time and splitting time in an ED somewhere and that box call comes off with a impending cardiac arrest resuscitation, you can implement some of the latest recommendations. So it's, it's really been a privilege for you to spend, or for me to spend the last 50 minutes. I was gonna say, for you to have given me the privilege of 50 minutes of your time talking about this. Now, if you have any questions, certainly this is my email, so don't, please shoot me an email. If you want the literature references, you'll have the slides. But once again, my thanks for coming this afternoon. You're off. Mike, that was an excellent talk, um, highlighting the things that are important. We probably need to do as well as we should, being a leader. Is there any yeah. data out there on how many people <coughs> is an optimal number of people to run an effective code? Uh, in the NICU, for, for sure, um, and on the floor sometimes, it's chaotic. There are mm -hmm. so many people you don't know who's doing what. Um, sometimes we respond to codes in, in labor delivery or in, in, in different places where you really have no idea what's going on just because of the sheer number of people. Mm -hmm. So the, the question was, is there a literature based or a literature that would suggest what's the opti optimal number of personnel that are necessary to run a resuscitation, or above which perhaps resuscitations don't go so well. I don't think that there is in terms of a number, but what I would say is the literature that I have seen in terms of the layout of a resuscitation, people have clearly defined roles. And as an example, what we've just started to do in the ED, in our resuscitation rooms, is 
we have stickers for, for providers and they take that role. So we have a procedure resident, an airway resident, there's a nurse, you know, we have well-defined roles and there's a, a limited number of those roles that when a resuscitation patient comes in, whatever role you are, it's clearly labeled. You slap the sticker on you and you are that person and you have well-defined responsibilities during that resuscitation. There is literature to talk about that and also the optimal positioning of people around the table. So there's, there's one paper out of Penn that kind of does their schematic on of where people specifically stand at around the patient. So it's much clearly articulated rather than haphazard, you know, alternating sides of compression. So to your direct answer is no, you know, in terms of an absolute number, but there certainly is literature to say there's better ways, well, clearly identifying who's in there and then anybody else extraneous, we, we get out of the room. Yes, sir. Great talk. Um, comment on questions. Comment related to the last question. So in SICU, we started using badges like that for the roles. Haven't quite figured out the right badge for the obnoxious surgical attending that shows up in the middle of a COVID patient, but unrelated to that part of the discussion. So you comment about with your grandfather how you were ushered out of the room when they had to restart mm -hmm. the station. So what are your thoughts about family observing yeah, I think that that literature has evolved over the last decade. So the question was, or the request was, comments about family presence during resuscitation. And I, I think many, many years ago that, that wasn't the norm. And I can tell you over the last you know, 15 years that I've been here, I certainly do it now almost all of the time. I'm completely comfortable with family observing the efforts that we're trying to do and the, the methods and the steps we're trying to take to revive their loved one. I have no, perhaps earlier in my career it may have been a confidence issue, quite honestly, I'll, I'll admit that, but as I've seen more and just become much more comfortable as, as an attending, I'm okay with that and the literature would support that family presence is welcome and they want it. Now, certainly I have a hand, you know, when, when we're running a code, I'll go to the family and, and I will say, this is the scenario. I'm, I'm not sure we're going to get your loved one back or some, some wording like that. Would you like to be present when we're there and we stop trying to, to bring them back? I would say probably 75% of the time they come with me. And there certainly are families that don't want to go in that room for whatever memory or value uh, vision that they're going to have. But I offer it to all of them. And I, I think it is. It help, it's helpful for their grieving process. Mike. What are the uh, data on mechanical compression devices, like the thumper? I mean, it theoretically... The Lucas II. Exactly. Yeah. A lot of uh, sense in terms of uh, hands-on time, or I guess, mm -hmm. yeah, compression. Yep, chest compression fraction. The uh, um, depth, the frequency, the ability to um, not stop compressions mm -hmm. during you know, defibrillation if necessary. Uh, what do you think? So Mike's question was, what about mechanical CPR devices? So if we're saying that we really need to achieve a chest compression fraction above 60%, let's just put the Lucas II on and we're going to get almost 100% chest compression fraction. Thus far, all of the literature, including meta-analysis and all sorts of things, have not shown 
that mechanical CPR devices are superior to traditional methods of CPR. Having said that, I think many feel in the resuscitation community that in resource-limited settings, they are beneficial. If you've got a single provider somewhere, you're by yourself in a unit, and there's very limited support staff, they may be beneficial in terms of achieving an adequate compression ratio. I will tell you that hospitals around the country that have effectively implemented eCPR, their protocols use, a most often use a mechanical device that allows the provider to step back from compressions and then cannulate the groin in preparation for ECMO. So lots of protocols do incorporate that, but if you, strictly the answer as we stand today is it hasn't been shown to be superior to traditional CPR. Nick. Um, kind of uh, building off of your the part of the talk when you dose epi for goals, mm -hmm. do you do a tiered approach where you target a diastolic arterial pressure, let's say a 30? No, no, I would still use the same diastolic pressure goal. I think the first thing to do rather than give vasopressors right off the bat is make sure that you're delivering the appropriate CPR. So make sure, you know, if you have a tech or a nurse, a nursing student or a med student, make sure that those compressions are high quality and then consider dosing your vasopressors. But I wouldn't if you're achieving an end tidal CO2 above 20 or a diastolic pressure 35 to 40, I wouldn't keep giving it to target a higher value. It's unlikely that that resuscitation is going to be successful. I would still use the same numbers as a target. In terms of, uh, just comment on the frequency of ventilations. So Mike brings up a great point. He talks about the frequency of ventilations, and it's incredibly important as team leaders to ensure or avoid excessive ventilation. So often RTs, we have wonderful RTs here in terms of getting to the head of the bed, or if you're doing bag valve mask, either an intubated or non-bagging an intubated patient, you want to get that about 8 to 10 breaths per minute. So often, and the literature is clear on this, some of the rates of our respirations and ventilations in cardiac arrest, there's a few studies that have approached 40 to 45 breaths per minute in the setting of a resuscitation because the anxiety is so high. But you really, you're looking at someone who's doing the compressions, the next view should be who's doing the ventilation, targeting about eight to 10 respirations or ventilations per minute. So critical point there. One, one more point is uh, just, I, I always emphasize during codes that you know, even temporary cessation of compressions uh, uh, requires multiple um, compressions to restart or mm -hmm. flow. So um, things stagnate, you know, blood yep. flow stagnates and, and even the first multiple compressions are pretty much ineffective in delivering for flow mm -hmm. once you restart. So I mean just a further sort of physiologic rationale for continuing compressions. Thanks. Thanks so much for coming. I really appreciate all your attention.